congregation who thought they were the only one with a certain problem. And I wanted to tell them so bad, well, the guy you sat across the aisle from also has the same problem. But I can't, of course, because of confidentiality. But they need to get together. They need to find each other, confess their faults one to another. We need to know each other, not be too scared. Thank you for that. I can't tell. My, I think I need a prescription change. You're kind of fuzzy, and I can't tell for sure. So I don't want to skip you if you've got something, but I can't see for sure whether you do. There is a hand. Oh, Daryl. I can tell him from a mile away. Congratulations on your retirement. Nice job the other morning. I was surprised. <laughs> Even a blind hog finds an acorn once in a while. <laughs> Rick, you, you mentioned about each uh, generation checking traditions. And is, is there any scripture on that? I, I mean, I agree, but I'm just wondering about uh, each generation evaluating the traditions and examining them. And we should always go to the Word all yeah. the time, but... Right. I, w I would think of the 7th chapter of Mark and the 15th chapter of Matthew. The Lord says, speaking of the Jews of his day, full well you reject the commandment of God by your traditions. And it's possible for us to do that if the tradition is getting in the way of fulfilling the word of God. There are some traditions that are neutral and innocuous and don't matter as long as we don't confuse them with something that came from the word of God. Ways of passing the emblems, ways of taking the collection, these type of things. You've got to have some way to do it in every congregation, and that way is not specified in the Bible. The Lord apparently didn't care what way we used for that. But if we are following a tradition that causes us to reject the Word of God, that's where the difficulty would come in. Tom, is yours on this? Okay. Another scripture that reminds me of is the woman at the well. She brought those people to Jesus, and they said, you know, we believed first because you said it, but now we believe because we saw it ourselves. That's right. the same principle. Very good. Thank you. Excellent. I think you could all hear that through the system. Did that answer it, Darrell? Okay, thanks. Any other questions or thoughts or hands? I can't tell if you guys have anything, so I guess I'll assume no. I don't know, Dacey. Tell me if I'm wrong. Just tell me if I'm wrong. As usual, I got stopped at a place that wasn't the best place to stop. I had a little statement that I wanted to read to you at the end because I thought it helps with the idea of maintaining a perseverance when we think in these terms. How does the soul grow? Not all in a minute. Now it may lose ground and now it may win it. Now it resolves and again the will faileth. Now it rejoiceth, and now it bewaileth. Now its hopes fructify, then they are blighted. Now it walks sullen, now hopes benighted. Fed by discouragements, taught by disaster. So it goes forward, now slower, now faster. Till all the pain is past and failure made whole. It is full grown, and the Lord rules the soul. That was written by Susan Coolidge and is remarkably adapted, I think, to the things that we were talking about. It doesn't all happen at once, but the balance, the perseverance, helps to carry you through. And this is one of the things that Christian fellowship helps us with the most. 
Now I'd like to move on to another scripture that Tom recommended in his list of, of scriptures for this class. It's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, and it also has a direct bearing on what we've been talking about. Are we free today? Because sometimes there seems like there is a power failure in the life of a Christian. We need to be energized and we need to be activated. And it's a question of individual attitude toward what God asks of us. In Ephesians 3.20, and we just sang a song about this last night out of the blue songbook. Somebody went out of their way to pass out blue songbooks so that we could sing this song. And I can see why, because this is a, a masterpiece. I mean, this is a real section of the New Testament that we ought to emphasize. In verse 20 of Ephesians chapter 3, I think there are really only two words that make this hard for us to believe. It's not that hard for us to believe when we read, Now unto them, unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh. We don't have a problem with that. That's not a difficult thing. We can understand that all right. But when we add on the in us to the end of that statement, then it becomes personal and we wonder where in the world do we really get that kind of power? How can we see in our lives an exceeding, abundantly, above all we ask or think kind of power? Jesus went so far in John chapter 14, verse 12, to say, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. How can we possibly do the things that Jesus did, and even greater things than he did? What does he mean by that? He certainly cannot mean miraculous power, because we could not do that. Even if we could perform miracles, how could we do greater miracles than Jesus did? He raised at least three, purpose, people, three people from the dead in addition to himself. But our work is greater in extent. Jesus uses the church collectively and he uses Christians individually to operate on earth as his body. Swayed by his will, pervaded by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom the Father sent when Jesus went to the Father. I think that's how that connects. These things, greater things shall he do because I go to my Father. The gospel of Christ wasn't even preached in its fullness until Jesus was gone. Now we can do the greater work of preaching the gospel all over the world and bringing people into the Lord's body. Greater works shall he do. This latter portion of the third chapter of Ephesians has to do with getting your engine going. If you think of it as a, an automobile, the power is in the engine. It has to do with getting it going. The, first, the Ephesian letter naturally falls into two parts. It's like one of those rocks that you hit and it splits in two. The Ephesian letter is like that. Six chapters, three chapters in each part. The first half of the Ephesian letter, Paul is describing our power and our place. In the first half of the Ephesian letter, Paul is not asking anything of us. He's just talking about what we have, what we already have. He's describing the power plant of the Christian. He's saying, this is who you are. You're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. You are chosen. You are holy. You are blameless. As a group, you are predestinated. You are accepted in the beloved. You are redeemed. 
You are forgiven. You are abounding in wisdom and knowledge. You know the mystery of God's will. You have obtained an inheritance. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You are the Lord's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You are the family of God. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He goes on and on in those first three chapters. And then in the second half of the book, starting in chapter 4, he describes what we're supposed to do based on what he's told us in chapter 3. Once the ignition has started the engine, he says in the beginning of chapter 4, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy. Based on everything we've said in chapters 1, 2, and 3, you should walk worthy. Once you get rolling, here's how you go. Here's the map. Here's the road. Here's what to do. This ignition in the latter part, when Paul is turning on the engine at the end of chapter 3, comes in the form of a prayer. And there seems to be a sequential progression to it. The first step is inner strength. Ephesians 3.14 For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man. That's step number one. For this cause I bow my knees to the Father. What cause, Paul? Because of who you are, because of what I've just written in the first three chapters. Because of your resources. I, I'm summing up, I'm coming to the end of these first three chapters, and I want to bring it to a climax. Because of who you are, because of your resources, because you have so much capacity, because of your position in Christ, I'm praying to the Father, the Father of whom the whole family of heaven and earth is named. He's talking about the whole Christian family. The church triumphant that's already with the Lord. The church militant that's still left here on earth. The whole family of God has a common Father. And it's to that Father that I bow my knees in prayer for you. Paul prayed a lot for the believers. Paul prayed for their spiritual needs much more than for their physical needs. Not that we should not pray for physical needs. But Paul was concerned primarily about spiritual things. I pray God that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. This is one of the most remarkable statements anywhere in the New Testament. That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory. You know, that phrase is interesting. According to his riches... We see this type of statement in the New Testament in many places. We saw it in the first chapter of Ephesians, in Ephesians 1.7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Or in Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ. God gives according to his riches rather than out of his riches. And there is a difference. To give out of his riches would mean to give something from the amount that he has. But to give according to his riches is to give in some kind of accordance with what he has. Example, if you find out about a serious and legitimate need among some of the brethren, you might go to a rich benefactor among us on their behalf and say to them, there is a special need 
Here's the situation. It is a legitimate need. I've checked it out every which way, and they need $500. And the rich benefactor says, fine, I'll give them $5. He's giving out of his riches. But if you say to him, they need $500, and he says, here, give them $1,000, then he's giving according to his riches. As rich as you are, that's how richly you give if you give according to your riches. And God gives according to his riches. As rich as he is, that's how richly he gives. And we're talking here about the power source of the universe. Paul prays that God would grant according to the riches of his glory, that we might be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. He is asking that God's resplendent attributes be richly applied to our spiritual progress. This is a remarkable thing. And you can see the sense of confidence that could grow from this. You can see the sense of power that comes from it. That they would be granted spiritual strength that comes from the Holy Spirit according to the riches that God has. As you and I yield to the Holy Spirit, He empowers us in the inner man. This has direct bearing on what we were talking about at the end of the first hour. The inner man just means the internal you. The real you, where you do your thinking, where you do your deciding. There are only two yous. The inner you and the outer you. The inside and the outside. The inside is strengthened by the Holy Spirit with power. How does that happen? Well, it is not just as simple as the Holy Spirit living in you because the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in every Christian when that Christian is obedient to the gospel plan of salvation. We read... I think last night in the Roman letter, chapter 8, that if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You're not even a Christian unless you have the Holy Spirit. But this is when you yield to him. This is when he fills your life. That's what Paul is talking about here. This is spiritual vigor that gives you victory in your own life. This is the strength to conquer to conquer the world, the flesh, and the devil, whatever else come your way. This is spiritual stamina that Paul's talking about here. And we need spiritual stamina to be victorious over temptation. You can only have that victory when you're strengthened in your inner man. In my own strength, I'm nothing. You're nothing. If we try to do this on our own, we're a disaster. We've undoubtedly tried that many times. Paul says in Romans 7.15 that which I would do, I don't even understand myself. That which I do, I understand not. What I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. Paul says, I've got a problem. I've got a big problem. I find this war within me. Oh, wretched man that I am. And then in chapter 8, verse 2, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. He's talking about walking not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Remember last night how we identified that. When you're walking in the flesh, your body tells you what to do. When you're walking in the Spirit and you're free from the flesh, you tell your body what to do. There's a huge difference. Huge difference. When you're walking not after the flesh, but after the Spirit, that's where the power comes in. 
It's important that we be strong on the inside. The pressures, the distresses of life can tear up the inner man, can destroy our spiritual balance, can discombobulate us. And God promises to strengthen us in the inner man if we will yield to His Spirit. Now, I know that that may sound all arcane and esoteric and ethereal, but I don't mean for it to sound that way. I believe this really is just as simple as saying and meaning, Lord, I yield to you at this moment. Strengthen me by your Spirit. That works if you mean it. And ask for strength for the moment. You only need strength for the present moment. You don't need tomorrow's strength today. I think this is one thing that disconnects us from this idea. We think we can ask for strength, and if the Lord really gives us strength, it's strength for all the rest of our life, all, all from, from now on. That isn't the way the Lord operates. You're living one moment at a time. God will strengthen you for this present moment, and that's all the strength you need. You don't need tomorrow's strength today. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. If today you are worrying about tomorrow, then today's issue is not tomorrow. Today's issue is today's worry about tomorrow. Deal with the issue that exists in the present moment. When you're troubled and turmoiled inside, this is the resource we have. This is the resource that God longs to give us. And it's not impractical at all. It's totally practical. Lord, strengthen me with might by your Spirit in my inner man. I yield to you. This is as practical as knowing how, in a moment of stress, to yield to the Spirit of God. Obviously, a knowledge of God's Word is imperative for this, so that you know God's will and God's thoughts dominate your mind, and you know right from wrong. And then what you have of the Bible in your mind become all these things become handles that the Holy Spirit can take a hold of to help you go the way that your better the better you wants to go. He empowers you to do that, but you've got to have the word inside of you. The Holy Spirit uses that. Life is about commitments and decisions. Each decision yielded to the Spirit of God allows the Spirit to further pour his strength into you. So Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled with the Spirit. The parallel passage in Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. There's a careful connection here between the Spirit and the word. No, I do not think that the word and the Spirit are the same thing. The word is the sword of the Spirit, according to the Apostle Paul. There's as much difference between the Spirit and his sword as there was between my grandpa and his pocket knife. But my grandpa did use his pocket knife on the farm, used it continually, day, day after day, all day long. It was a good tool for him. As your mind is saturated with the Word of God, the Spirit has the truths in your mind by which he can help you. The Spirit inspired the Bible in the first place, the training manual, and then he empowers you to implement that. As we yield to the Spirit, our inner man is strengthened. 
So Paul does say, and I mentioned this in the last hour, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. I believe that each one of us needs to believe that personally. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. That doesn't mean I will. I have to make decision after decision to keep that momentum going. But I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. There are amazing things that can be done in my life and in yours if I lend myself to Him and to this process. That's the main issue. Keeping ourselves so we are reclining upon Him. That's confidence. Paul wrote that from a prison. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. He wrote it from a prison, but it never fazed him because his resource was available. We get a lot of insight into this in the second Corinthian letter when he says, After I prayed three times for the Lord to take away my thorn in the flesh, the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for thee. I can imagine that Paul must have thought, if I could just get rid of this thorn in the flesh, I could do so much more. I could be so much more active. I could do so much good for so many more people. But God said, no. My grace is sufficient for thee. He didn't stop there. He said, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's a key part of that sentence. My strength is made mature is made complete in weakness. In whose weakness? In your weakness. You're better off when you realize your inabilities. You're better off when you realize that your own strength is not going to be enough. Paul said, I'll gladly glory in infirmities that the power of Christ may shine forth. I'll take reproach I'll take infirmity, I'll take persecution, I'll take distress, all for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong, truly strong. When I realize that I have no resource but to depend on the Spirit of God, then I'll develop an instantaneous ability to depend on Him if His Word is dominating my thoughts. Paul prays that the inner man of each one of us will be strengthened. And that can only happen when the Spirit of God does it. And the Spirit of God can only do it when we allow Him to do it. So it comes back to our decisions again. It's as simple as this. When I'm being tempted, I need to say, Lord, I desire Your will. I yield to Your power. Please help me. I believe if that is an honest prayer, the Holy Spirit will empower you to do right. You have the power to do right. And knowing that is a paradigm shift for many people who believe that they're just so enslaved to one sinful obsession or another that they can't do anything about it. And that becomes an excuse to not do anything about it. But God doesn't let us get by with that. We can do something about it by the power that He furnishes or wants to furnish to us. Paul was under a lot of pressure at times. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 9, he went into it a little bit. We are handicapped on all sides, but we're never completely frustrated. We are puzzled, but never in total despair. 
We are persecuted, but we never have to stand it alone. We may be knocked down, but we've never yet been knocked out. Every day we experience something of the death of the Lord Jesus, so that we also know the power of the life of Jesus in these bodies of ours. And he says, this is the reason we never collapse. The outward man does indeed suffer wear and tear, but, the inward, but every day the inward man receives fresh strength. This is the spiritual muscle that the Holy Spirit gives to us. This is big league stuff in the Christian life. That leads to something else back in Ephesians 3. I pray that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might by his Spirit in the inner man, in order that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Now what's he talking about there? This is point number two. The first point was inner strength. Second point, indwelling Christ. Once you're strengthened with his might, Paul seems to be saying here that Christ will dwell in your heart. And that's a disconnect superficially when we look at that because isn't Christ dwelling in the heart of every Christian? Doesn't that happen from the moment of baptism on that Christ comes to live in your heart? I think the meaning of the word dwell here helps us solve that dilemma. The word translated dwell is a compound word. Half of it means to be at home or to, to be at your house or, or at your home. And the other means, the other half of the word means down. Put together, this compound word means to settle down and be at home. Take this inner strength from the Holy Spirit that Christ may settle down and be at home in your hearts. It's the idea of a total comfort that Christ may settle down and be totally at home in your hearts. Question. Would you say that Christ could be in a heart and not necessarily be totally comfortable there? I would say yes. In my case, he has probably experienced that many times. How can he settle down and be at home when he's got to be cleaning the place up all the time? It's such a mess. When you're strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man, and the Spirit helps you with this purifying process, then Christ will be at home there, and he can settle down and enjoy your life instead of always needing to clean it up. The tense of the expression shows a finality that Christ may finally settle down and feel comfortable in your heart. Does the Lord ever have time just to settle down and enjoy you and your relationship with Him? Or is He unable to rest in comfort within you because there's so much self, there's so much sin, there's so much disobedience that He's busy cleaning all the time? What is there in my heart today? Am I free today? What is there in my heart this very day that prevents the Lord from really settling down there? A few years ago, there was a little book called My Heart, My Home by Robert Munger. 
in which he pictured the heart, the human heart, the heart of a Christian, as a house. You come out of the world, and you come into Christ, and Christ is in the house, but he's got a mess in there. When you become a Christian, you may have a lot of habits. You may have a lot of attitudes. You may have a lot of deficiencies that need to be corrected. Becoming a Christian is not the end. It's just the beginning. You may have a lot of cleaning to do. So the Lord comes into your house, which is your heart, and first he goes into the library in this imagination of how it might be. He goes into the library, which is your brain, the control room of your house. He sees all the garbage that's been pumped into that brain through a lifetime of living in the world before you came to him. And he looks at the shelves and he says, well, this volume's got to go, that's got to go. He looks over there, there's a whole shelf that needs to be taken out and done with like they did with the books at Ephesus in the first century. We need to get rid of a lot of this and replace it with something in which you can meditate day and night. In comes the Word of God, pumping it in there as fast as you can get it in there. So he's changed the library. And then the Lord goes into the dining room, which is the place of your appetites. And he sees what your appetites are. All things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He reads you completely. Maybe you're money hungry, or you want prestige, or you're full of pride. You've got to get rid of this stuff. He to feed you on righteous things, he says. So he cleans out the dining room. And then he walks into the living room. This is the place where you have fellowship. And he sees who your fellowship is with. Who your friends are, what they're like, why they're your friends. He begins to straighten all that up. may require severe changes here. He goes down into the workshop in your house. And he sees abilities and talents and skills. But they're all being used maybe to make toys. And he says, we need to retool this area and use these same abilities and talents and skills to build things for my kingdom. He moves from one room to another within your house. He cleans up one area after another. And then you realize that there's a terrific odor coming out of the closet. And the Lord says, what's that closet over there? What's in there? And you say, can't you just leave that closet alone? I've given you everything else. You've dealt with my whole house here. I've only got one closet left. Just leave me this one closet. It's a two-by-four closet. Can't I at least have that for myself? Surely, surely you can leave that. The cleaner the rest of the house is, the worse that closet smells. It smells like something dead. It contains the hidden personal things that you don't want to give up. But the Lord cannot settle down in that house and be at home until he gets that closet cleaned. The Spirit of God strengthens you in the inner man to give you the victory over sin, even those sins. Victory over sin means a pure life. It is in a pure life that the Lord can settle down and be at home. And this is a sequential process. It doesn't happen all at once. So, step number one is inner strength. Step number two is the indwelling Christ settling down and being at home 
in your life. The third thing in verse 17, again, uh, is a part of the sequence. In order that, being rooted and grounded in love, you may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. The third point is incomprehensible love. When Jesus really settles down and is at home in our hearts, when he dominates our life, there is a love that exudes throughout that life. The one thing that fulfills the whole law, says Paul, is love. Romans 13. Love is the fulfilling of the law. This is why Augustine says, said in the 4th century, love God and do what you want. Now he overstated the case a bit, I think, because we still live in a mortal body that hasn't been redeemed yet, as we talked about last night. But Augustine is stating the ideal. If you really love as you ought to, if you get the love right, then you're going to want to do the things that are right because you will act, you will make every decision in love, thinking of others ahead of yourself. So Augustine, though overstating it, makes a point well. Love God and do as you will. Incomprehensible love. As the Spirit does His work, as Christ settles down, His love permeates your life. Rooted and grounded in love means that you're solidly established in love as a way of life. And this becomes your new habit. Love becomes your habit. To comprehend it means to seize it and make it your own. Be sure that you make this your habit. This love which is shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Spirit which is given unto you. Romans chapter 5 verse 5. So the third point is love that's just incomprehensible. In this process you can comprehend it. Point number four is at the end of verse 19. That you might be filled with all the fullness of God. If I'm filled with all the fullness of God, then verse 20 starts to make more sense. The in you at the end of, near the end of verse 20, it begins to see, I begin to see how that fits together. God can do anything that he wants to do through me. If God wants to do something through me, he will equip me to do that thing that he wants me to do. I don't have to worry about it if I'll just lend myself to the process. I may have some abilities that I have refused to develop or didn't even know I had them, God can work within those abilities. He's the one who created them. He sees them and knows them. He knows me. If I lend myself to this process, no telling what God might be able to do through me. That's what he's talking about here. He can do anything he wants through me. Verse 16 is talking about the Spirit of God empowering you. Verse 17 talks about Christ indwelling you. And now he's talking about God. God in his triune fullness is involved in this passage. God's attributes and His essence reside inside you. And what's going to flow out of you is the fruit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. And the end is, God will be glorified. God will be glorified. Number five, He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to that power that is now working within us. That power is not working within you unless verses 14 through 19 are in operation. If they're in operation, then God through you is able to perform exceeding abundantly above what we ask and even what we think. 
Are we free today? Have we even begun to tap the resources of God in our lives? The point of all this is in verse 21. Unto him be glory in the church. In the church. That's the way it operates. Glory to God in the church that Jesus bought with his own blood. There's no other institution, no other organization on earth that's for that purpose or that can be used for that purpose in the way that he's referring to it here. That God might be glorified in the church is the reason for everything we do. I need to pause here and see if you have anything to ask or to say. And again, I can't see that far anymore. Oh, Tom, I'm sorry. I should have looked over there. Uh, thank you, Rick. That is a wonderful exposition of that passage. Uh, one of the reasons that I count my cancer all joy is because in my weakened condition, it is easier to think good thoughts. And the, the more we think good thoughts, the easier it is for Christ to finally settle down in our lives. And it's like... The, the more we think in obedience to the will of God, the, the more refreshed we feel. We feel clean. And when an evil thought does come into the mind, in our weakened condition, it's easier to recognize it and to think, I don't have time for this. I, I don't have time to waste. I, I know that there's better things to think about than this. So it's a wonderful way God makes his strength mature and complete in our weakness and why we can rejoice in what happens to us. Thank you very much for that, Tom. I, you have expressed that very well and it's, a, it's an amazing thing that you're speaking of there. I have been so blessed physically. I can't remember the last time I was sick. Obviously there can be any, something growing inside of us that none of us know about at any time, but as far as I know, I'm healthy. I've been so blessed throughout the, the decades of my life. But I do remember, as Tom speaks of this, and I hadn't thought of this for a long time, one time in maybe junior high, I was sick at home in bed. And I experienced just a, this much of what you're talking about now, just this tiny much. That's the nice thing about having the audience so far away. You can hold up a kernel of corn and nobody can tell if it's really there or not, eh, Clayton? I experienced this this much of what you're talking about. And I even wrote, I remember writing the sentence down, how is it possible to feel so physically horrible and so spiritually wonderful? That's the type of thing that you're talking about there. And I am profoundly blessed that you are using your illness for good in the way that you are. Thank you for that, and I know we all thank you. What an inspiration. Were there other, okay... Can't see Charles. Charles. Yeah, I was thinking about this uh, before today, and I really, really appreciate your your uh, class here, because um, so many times, particularly recently, I've noticed it. It seems like so many times we talk about how our nation is going downhill, and and the things that our children may have to encounter and experience, and so forth, um, and that may all very well be true. Um, my concern is that, and I asked a few of them what they thought or what the reaction was, but my concern is that we describe this giant and 
if we don't give them what you just was talking about, then we make them Saul before the giant instead of David. The only power comes from God. Thank you for that, Charles. And that is a corrective that we need when we tell our young people about all the things they're going to have to face. I can remember Brother Vic Gibson, who was an elder at a, the congregation that I was a part of, and the only congregation I've ever been a member of. He was one of my elders. He was 65 years old, but I thought he was ancient. Now 65 seems young to me. But I thought he was ancient at the time. I know he couldn't have been over 65 because he died at 65 of a massive heart attack. But he was a man for whom I had a profound respect. And I can remember standing with him in the aisle and he had my hand in his and he was pumping my hand and saying that he really hated to think of what my generation was going to have to face. And I didn't really know why he was talking like that. So yeah, I need to put myself, when I say these things to the kids, I do need to put myself back where I was before and see how maybe it comes across to them. Thank you for that corrective. Appreciate that very much. Other questions, comments, thoughts? I keep seeing motion, and I think it's hands, but it's not. So unless these guys can find you, we'll just go on. I, nope? Okay. I was also asked to talk, and I, I need to refer, before my time is completely gone, I need to refer back to my assignment, which I, through the years, have not always done, as Tom knows better than any of you, because he has the assignment. Right in front of him, probably. Anyway, he, I mean, he, that's one reason he sits up here to try to keep us on the beam, I think. And we appreciate that. I know I do. So this was my actual assignment, now that we're nearly done here. Are we in bondage in any way today? Is it possible for us to be deceived like the Jews who told Jesus they were never in bondage to any man? John 8, 33. Talk about how we allow Jesus to be Lord of our lives, as well as how we should follow his plan for the government of the church. We haven't done that, have we? Show how men have allowed themselves to become slaves throughout history by giving up their liberties for some temporary security. Help us to check ourselves and see if we are truly free in Christ. God's plan for the government of the church is so simple that man can hardly leave it alone. All we have in the New Testament is that there, well, first of all, obviously the word church is used in more than one way in the New Testament. It's used in the universal sense, and God may use it in its totality to function in certain ways, but none of us know about all of that, because we don't see the church in its universal sense. The church in its universal sense is made out of people like us around the world. Everybody who is in a saved condition is in that church, and we don't know where they all are. There could possibly be some of God's church meeting over in the next hill, and we might not necessarily know that. In fact, from time to time, we do come across other pieces of God's church, and it's a joy and a delight when we can get together and have fellowship in, in some of those situations. But the way that God's church really works as we see it in the world is through the local congregation, which is autonomous. And there was no hierarchical structure on top of the local congregation that was built in between to make things more efficient and effective as man would view it. So we do have a head and we do have a headquarters and the headquarters is where our head is and the head is Christ. He is the head of the body, the church. So he functions from heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and every congregation individually is under him. And there are under-shepherds in these congregations that serve under him. 
And the qualifications are given to us. And the highest office that anybody can hold in the Lord's Church on the human level is to be an elder in the local congregation. And there are six words used in the New Testament to describe all the functioning of that, and I think you know those very well. If you don't, we can talk about them, but I, I feel sure you know what those six words are and the meaning of those. They come in couplets, pastors and shepherds, elders and presbyters, bishops and overseers. These all describe in the New Testament the same group of men. But it wasn't very long after the New Testament was closed and the canon was complete that the mind of man was hard at work to improve it. And you have a bishop taken to be over the other elders within the local congregation. We have letters written fairly early in the second century, the letters of Ignatius that talk in this kind of terminology. The bishop is over the elders. They should be attuned to him like the strings are attuned to a harp. Well, there's nothing in the New Testament like that. Such a rapid change took place, and it, it kept on going. Gradual change occurring over time. No one generation saw all of it. No one generation would have stood for all of it. Not that much change in a given human life. But as the centuries came and went, you know the story very well about the great apostasy which Paul had predicted in 2 Thessalonians 2. You know that story very well. And it's not a pretty story. We wound up with each metropolitan area having a man who was in charge of the whole thing. The Pope of Alexandria, the Pope of Jerusalem, the Pope of Antioch, the Pope of Rome, and through various political machinations, and etc., too detailed to go into here. We wound up with the Pope in Rome being over all of these others. And this process continues today. I've got a book at home that tells all the Popes, except for this new one that we've got now. I wrote him in. But all the others are, are there in print. And you can detail and see, see the process. I think I read to you here one time out of that book a little bit. And in the early days, it was hardly developed at all. It was just an incipiency as an apostasy. And then you see it develop and grow over time. So it's not a pretty picture, and it's one that you're well familiar with, but that, that particular apostasy was not the only one that we've had, obviously, because it's in the spirit of man to do this over and over again. We've got something that's headquartered out in Salt Lake City that is like, I believe the devil brought that about purposefully as a counterfeit to the Lord's Church. Joseph Smith even used the same name. The first name of the Mormon Church was Church of Christ in 1830. It was a purposeful attempt at counterfeiting what God has done. If Joseph Smith didn't know it was pur purposeful, then the one who was inspiring him knew it was purposeful, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Anyway, we've got that in Salt Lake City. We've got these things all over the world, all around the world, happening all the time. And no wonder, then, we are asked to talk about God's plan for the government of the church. He has this simple plan. It's detailed in the New Testament. This is what he wants us to follow. And it does work if we work God's plan. A lot of the problem comes when we think we need to be more efficient and more effective about it, when in reality, God is just as interested, or at least as interested, in the process as he is in the product. He's at least as interested in the way we do it as he is in what we end up with. And the fact is, if you start someplace other than what he has given us, you don't end up with the product he wants us to have. 
It's not all about what we would term efficiency or effectiveness. It's about using this process of, for instance, mutual edification. I can see how people would think that seems much less effective, especially when we practice it sometimes or fail to really practice it sometimes. But if we do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, it is obviously the superior system. Many of our people who are against it have never really seen it done in the Lord's way. They've never really seen the brethren apply themselves and iron sharpen iron as the Lord had in mind. We need to help them see that by handling it in the way the Lord insists. And we've talked about that at other, other times. This all goes back to what man sees and how man thinks. The spirit of apostasy is present in every generation. It can be present in you if you get discouraged. It's when we get discouraged about the way things are going in our local congregations that we start looking around for other ways of doing things, other answers. And we look at our religious friends and say, they're doing this. That seems to be working for them. Look how happy they are over there. Well, if you went over there and were actually there, an integral part of things, you'll see that that's just another group of people as messed up as you are. But from a distance, it looks different. How often have you had somebody say, well, we were on our vacation. We were there, and I think we should do what they're doing there. Well, maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. That depends on several factors. But it always looks different when it's somebody else. We each need to tie into the congregation where we are and just see that we are each contributing what we ought to be, each doing what we ought to be. We are each encouraging the others as we ought to. One reason for meetings like this is to help us go home and do that. You're going to get home soon. Most of you will be in your home congregation on the Lord's Day. Don't let that take the wind out of your sails. Think in terms of what you can do, what you can give there. So we do, and I appreciate that assignment, we do need to be following his plan for the government of the church and never change that. I believe that the churches that we're working with are using the government, governments, as Paul puts it in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, governments that he intended us to use. There is the permanent form of the eldership. There is the temporary form of the evangelist having authority in a congregation until the time that elders can be appointed there, until he can work himself out of that job. So there are he has set governments in the church. I believe the churches we're working with are doing that as well as any churches that I know of, any congregations that I know of anywhere. If I didn't think so, I would be telling you that. We are passing on that plan. I am very grateful to the church in my parents' and grandparents' generation that with all of its failings, it has passed down to me the correct organization is passed down to my generation the biblical organization for the church and the government of the church. I want to be sure that I am able and I am willing to pass on to my children's generation and my grandchildren's generation the same biblical organization and pattern for the church. So that they at least have a standard from which to depart. After I'm dead, they'll do what they choose. But we need to indoctrinate them with the apostles' doctrine so that they know what God's standard is, and to the extent that we can, know they know the reason for the way God has done it. He hasn't told us all about it, but sometimes we can sort of guess for the reason that he has set things like they are. This congregational autonomy has helped the church to continue all through the years. 
you pollute the Roman system at the top and you pollute the whole system because it's a hierarchy that trickles down. We could not possibly do that with the Lord's Church as we find it in the New Testament. If one of the congregations that's represented here becomes polluted, well, it's been, I heard this example when I was a boy and I've used it many times. It's like the difference between throwing a rock through a picture window which ruins the whole window or throwing it through a big window that's divided into lots of little panes. You can knock out one pane with a rock, but the rest of the panes remain unaffected. You can knock out three or four panes with three or four rocks, but the rest of the panes remain unaffected. They're unbroken. That may be part of the reason that God planned it that way. There's no one individual or group of individuals that you can get to and ruin the Lord's church everywhere on earth. He was much wiser than to establish it in that sort of an ecclesiastical, hierarchical way. So these are some of the types of things that I'm guessing that Tom wanted us to talk about. you have anything further to say about any of that? Yeah. With freedom comes responsibilities. And this has been spoken of maybe every day. I was only here yesterday in this class with your kids the days before that. So I don't know what all has been said. But that is certainly a hallmark of the Lord's Church. With freedom comes great responsibility. And Tom asked me to emphasize again the mutual edification of the saints. This is something that God has placed upon the men of the church that we need to take more seriously than most of us usually do. So easy in a local congregation to develop an old boy's mentality, a kind of a club type of mentality, where we can slough off and we, we validate each other in that because we all want to do it. And so we establish this level of mediocrity within our congregation and we can kind of, we don't literally nudge each other in the side, but it's, it's, it's close enough, like they used to say, it's close enough for rock and roll or it's close enough for government work. It's close enough for just us folks, you know. These things ought not so to be. You need an impetus within you to study the Word of God on your own because you want to or because you drive yourself to. And I'll tell you what I've seen. I have seen a congregation that was in the kind of mediocrity I was describing, and then one of the brethren who's on fire for the Lord and deeply into the Word, he'll come and he'll place his membership there, and it's infectious. I have seen this infect the men, and in particular the younger men of the congregation, until their standard of preparation raises to his. I don't know if he's shaming them or what's happening, but there is an infectiousness about it. So that infectiousness can work either way. It can pull you down if you let it. You're discouraged because, well, why should I be the only one who works at it hard? Why should I give so much when they don't give? It's easy to think that way when you're with them all the time. Why not think of it the other way? In the Lord's plan, we are the initiators. We are the ones who take the first step. We are the ones who go the second mile. We are the ones who give without thought of receiving. And if each of us will take that attitude, or if half of us will take that attitude, if a few of us, maybe if just you in your congregation will take that attitude, it might be amazing over time. Don't connect your faithfulness to the Lord to finding results in that. You might do that and not see the results you want, but your congregation will be better off anyway.
And you might be able to inspire somebody with the fire of the Lord. Don't be too dependent on each other. Yes, we help each other. We wouldn't have these congregations if we weren't supposed to help each other. Don't be too dependent on the horizontal. Look at the vertical. One of the biggest problems I think we have in the churches is that we have our brethren looking at the horizontal in the religious world in general and bringing those things or trying to bring those things into the church. Let's look at the vertical relationship. That's the main thing. If we get the vertical right, then the horizontal relationship with other people tends to fall into the place where it ought to be. More? Okay. Anybody else have something you wanted to ask or say? Appreciate you very much you bearing with us through this time. Oh, yeah, I wanted to touch on this too. Throughout history, giving up their liberties for some temporary security. It seems that way. Government seems that way. Government accumulates, it grows, and people love to have it so because of the cradle-to-the-grave security promised by the government. The trouble is, as you know, eventually that system collapses and then nobody has any security. We're headed right smack dab toward that in our country at this time. Well, so many other places have found out that socialism doesn't work. Let's try it here. You know, it's, it doesn't really make a lot of sense, but it's easy to get votes that way. This is uh, one of the flaws in the democratic system, is that everybody has to be thinking about getting votes all the time. So bread and circuses. You know, I'm not saying, there used to be a TV program. I remember that this was on because I was forced to go to bed right as this program was coming on when I was a boy. At the, at the beginning of that program, it said, and I don't know what program it was, you might, it said, democracy is a very bad form of government, but all the other forms are so much worse. And there's really a lot of truth in that. It is a flawed system because human nature is a, a flawed nature. But uh, th this idea of security within the church is a real problem. You are out there without a net when you're up edifying the brethren. It's up to you to work hard at that and learn how to do it if God has equipped you at all. And you're not going to fool God about whether he equipped you to do it. It's up to the saints to do it. And when the men of the congregation do that well, there is a fulfillment, a satisfying. The men, especially the grandfathers of the congregation, are the key to the whole congregation. If they're handling this well, there is a trickle down within the local congregation. Young men tend to look to old men to see how to live, how to function, how to behave in the church. That's just apparently the way that God made it. If, you're, if you have now become an older man, check out Titus 2 again, of those six things there or so that you are supposed to be, and you'll help your, your whole congregation with that. Well, it's 11.30. I don't know if the classes are on their way back yet, but they were supposed to start back three minutes ago. I appreciate very much this time together with you, and I hope it's been helpful for your consideration.